Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. In this episode, the Brothers in Crime explore the savage murder of two incredible women on the Colonial Parkway in the fall of 1986. More than three decades later, and despite hundreds of suspects and thousands of leads, the killer remains at large. Today, we're going to talk about Rebecca Dowski and Kathleen Thomas. October 1986, near the colonial capital in Williamsburg, Virginia. 86, that was what, about 35 years ago, something like that? Feels like 100 years ago. (laughs) Good grief, that's so far back. Caitlyn Jenner was a dude. It was certainly a long time ago. Now, Williamsburg is about an hour, maybe a little less, from Virginia Beach, right there, the Atlantic Ocean. We're on the East Coast. This is in the Colonial Triangle area of Jamestown, Williamsburg, and Yorktown, Virginia. Now, Kathleen Thomas, uh, she went by Kathy, really just an impressive woman. Uh, She graduated from the United States Naval Academy in 1981. She was part of the second class that actually admitted or allowed women to be part of the academy. And uh, she really wanted to do this. She wanted to follow in her father's footsteps. He had graduated from the Naval Academy, as had her brother. My understanding is they were one of the first father-son-daughter combos to come out of the Naval Academy. So this was only the like the second year the, or second class that women were like allowed to be in the Navy? Not in the Navy, but in the Naval Academy specifically. Oh. So prior to that, women were not allowed entry into the Naval Academy. Um, so she was really at the forefront of that. And um, 1986, she was 27. She came from an Irish Catholic family. Her brother, Bill, he's spoken about her often. And in fact, he has a podcast and a website. His podcast is Mind Over Murder. And he talks about Kathy and, and related cases frequently and then trying to just build awareness of what happened and to keep her memory going. Brother Bill, was he the one that was in the Navy? I do not believe so. I think it was their other brother. They came from, again, Irish Catholic family, so there were more than a couple siblings. Sure. But Bill was not the the other one who had been in the Naval Academy, at least. She was described, Kathy was described as extremely smart, socially conscious, articulate, funny, with a quick Irish wit. Bill said that Kathy, she always held her own, even from the time she was a little girl. And to set the picture in your mind, she had red hair, she had blue eyes. She excelled as an athlete in high school. She played basketball and she competed in track and field. She was a great student in school. She did well at the Naval Academy. And during her time there, she actually became fluent in Russian and was acknowledged as being one of the students who had excelled the most in Russian study. After the Naval Academy, she was assigned to Norfolk, Virginia, which is down there in this area there, right around Virginia Beach, Williamsburg, down there. And she was assigned as a logistics officer. She was also one of the first women to become surface warfare officer qualified. And even though she did really well in the Navy and everything that I could find, anybody who ever served with her spoke very highly of her. Really just there's nothing negative about her that I could find anywhere. It's all really glowing recommendations or acknowledgments of who she was as a person and her capabilities. She left the Navy after her initial five-year obligation and became a stockbroker in Virginia Beach. What I've read and come to understand about this case is that part of why she made the decision to do that, even though initially she had hoped to serve a lifetime career in the Navy, was that Kathy was gay. And at that time, it was actually illegal and she could have been kicked out of the Navy for being gay. 
And her brothers reported that she had been investigated, that investigators from the Navy had looked into her background. And I guess there was maybe some suspicion about her lifestyle. And so they were actively looking into it. And that may have influenced her decision to get out after her initial five-year commitment. First of all, I don't know about you, but I learned early on, you don't mess with a redheaded woman. (laughs) Uh, But for her to accomplish so much in the Naval Academy, and it doesn't sound like there's anybody that has a negative word to say about her, and learning Russian, and most of us can't even learn English. (laughs) That's our first language. Wow. Yeah, I mean, just impressive. And then to make the transition, right, she goes from a surface warfare officer to a stockbroker. I mean, when I read that, I thought it seems like quite a transition. But from everything I read, I mean, she just made everything she did seem effortless. Yeah, it sounds like two pretty high-skill careers that I don't usually hear about being together. Now, Rebecca Dowski, who went by Becky, she was Kathy's girlfriend. They had been in a relationship for about six months. She was a little bit younger. She was 21 at the time. She was born in the state of New York. I think this is Poughkeepsie. Is that how you say that? Yeah, Poughkeepsie. Poughkeepsie in the Hudson River Valley. And she had a passion for team sports at five foot seven and a muscular 375 pounds. She was pretty good at a wide variety of sports, basketball and especially softball. She didn't just play on the teams. She pushed herself to really be a star player, working out regularly to stay in shape. I've seen her picture. She was not 375 pounds. I thought I said 135 pounds. You said five foot seven, 375 pounds. <laughs> well, okay, well, I meant 135 pounds. <laughs> Nothing against the girls of girth, but I've seen her picture. She ain't no 375. Well, especially not at 5'7". Maybe if she was eight feet tall, but I want to see the audio, though. I swear I said 135, but Becky's father, Julian, received an opportunity to work in France. Becky was high school age. She attended an American school in Paris. She joined an intramural baseball team at the American school, which took her all over Europe, playing games in other countries. She was the team captain for softball and basketball squads and earned Athlete of the Year honors before she graduated. Well, that's impressive. Yeah, both of these ladies are incredibly impressive women. While in Paris, her dad announced that he was leaving Becky's mom. You know, divorce is hard on any any kids. And well, so, divorce when you've got the whole family living in another country, and then you drag them <laughs> to France and then say, by the way. Uh, by the way, I'm leaving your mom. Yeah, it's, pre- it's pretty tough. In fall 83, Becky attended Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which I have been to a few times. It's a private liberal arts college, not too terribly large, about 1,750 students. At Dickinson, she starred on the school softball team and was named MVP and Mid-Atlantic All-Conference team member. She spent some time working for a, a YMCA camp program. After two years at Dickinson, Becky realized that she wanted more than what a liberal arts education offered her in terms of career options. So she left Dickinson to pursue more of a business type degree. Becky chose William & Mary, according to her brother Bob, because she wanted more focus in her studies. More than one person has said that Becky was looking to get into international business and corporate finance, no doubt leveraging the two years that she spent living in Paris. And her decision to transfer to William & Mary came about in January 1986. Sounds like she was well on her way to success. Yeah, of course. And William and Mary's, it's a great school, a very well-regarded college. Becky was working two jobs while she was in school. She worked at a daycare and she also had a gig at the college's English department. Now, after she transferred to William and Mary, Becky didn't really have the time that she had before for team sports. The demanding nature of academia took precedence. And so she poured herself into that and prioritize that over sports. Well, I guess, I mean, she's working two jobs and whatever the academic schedule was, Mm -hmm. you barely have time to turn around. Yeah, she was involved, very busy, like you said, working jobs. 
She dated some while she was at William & Mary, but apparently for most of that time, she didn't really want to commit to any anybody. The one person, his name was Farouk, they had some kind of a dating relationship. However, Becky broke it off whenever she met Kathy. According to some folks, Farouk was not happy that he had been dumped, particularly that he had been dumped for another lady. It hurt his manhood that he got dumped for a girl. Yeah, he didn't take being dumped well, and then apparently the fact that you know, he got dumped for another lady, he just really didn't take too kindly to that. Becky and Kathy, they meet each other. They were in the beginning of this new relationship, seeing where things were going and where it would end up. Unfortunately, they wouldn't get a chance to see just exactly where that would go. Her sister-in-law has said that she was quiet, but that she had this sense of vivaciousness about her that just kind of uh, was captivating and made her really fun to be around. She said that Becky enjoyed going to Gap. She liked to dress well. She liked being on trend and that she was just a beautiful woman. In 1986, the Gap was the place to make that happen. <laughs> I'll trust. I'll take your word for it. Now, uh, by all accounts, these women were smart. They were successful. They just seemed like the kind of people you'd want to hang out with. They just, they really had their whole lives in front of them. But unfortunately, that's not how things worked out. Again, it's 1986. We're going to go back to Columbus Day weekend. For those of you who don't keep track, that's in October. Kathy and Rebecca were last seen leaving a computer lab at William & Mary in Williamsburg, and that was the last time that anybody saw them alive. A few days later, Sunday morning, October 12th, a pedestrian spotted a car down an embankment on the Colonial Parkway. The Colonial Parkway is this 23-mile scenic parkway that links Jamestown, Williamsburg, and Yorktown. And so this is all part of that historical triangle. That area is part of the National Park Service's Colonial National Historical Park. The road itself is unmarked, and it's made out of rounded river gravel that's set in a concrete mix. And so it's kind of got this earthy, reddish-brown with some gray tone to it. And I've driven on it, and it's really weird to drive on because it's completely unmarked. So when you're on the road, you feel like you're not exactly sure where you should be. Oh, so there's when you say unmarked, you mean there's no lines and okay, to tell you which lane, there's no lanes basically. Yeah, and the way the road is, it's actually you can tell that they built it or laid it out in these three different sections. And so when you drive, you have the natural, like the divides in the road that probably are channeled for like rainwater or whatever. So you have these breaks that go along the road and there's two of them, but there's no lines. And so you almost feel you're really probably supposed to ride just over the one line, but then you feel like you're sort of driving. It's very hmm. strange. If you haven't driven it before, it's the first time you get on there. It takes you a couple minutes to get oriented to it. But all that to say, it's intended to make you feel like you've went back in history. It's not very well lit. There's lots of trees everywhere. They've planned it out in a way that allows it to seem like you've driven back in time. So there's not like a McDonald's on this thing or... <laughs> right. Yeah, there's no big billboards. In fact, bridges or anything like that. I mean, even those are made to seem and look very old and in a way that doesn't stand out. Nothing stands out. It feels very much like you've just slipped back into history. And that's all very intentional. So that's where we are. We're on that Colonial Parkway. And Kathy had a 1980 Honda Civic, which I think probably many people could relate to either having driven or ridden in one of those. They lasted forever. You couldn't kill those things. Yeah. I mean, there's probably still several thousand on the road today. I'd be interested to look that up. So the police find it just a few feet from a drop-off that leads down to the York River. Now, kind of turning to the crime scene, now that we're there, the crime scene in this case is, the word that comes to my mind is puzzling. There's a lot of contradictions. There's a lot of just weird things about it. So this river is like on the highway or under it or beside it? Yeah. So the York River kind of runs along this part of the Colonial Parkway, like it just meets up and then you've got this little embankment and then there's a drop-off. Well, okay, so the road, like how far from the road to the river is it? I think where we are here, 
Not far at all. If you were a drunk driver and you could easily, and in fact, that's what, when the police first arrive and they see this Kathy's car that it's down this little embankment, the initial thought is, oh, somebody was out partying drunk and drove off the road and almost went into the river. Oh, okay. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. As bad as that would be, what they found was much worse. And again, like I said, at nighttime, particularly the Colonial Parkway. I mean, it's pretty eerie. It's like the perfect setting for a horror movie. Police find Kathy's Civic and it is down this embankment a little bit and they find Kathy and Becky's bodies inside the car. Both women had been strangled and they had rope marks on their necks and on their wrists, but that wasn't the end of it. The killer had actually also slit their throats. Oh my. To the point that Kathy was virtually decapitated. Oh, wow. The killer put Kathy in the very back hatchback area of the Honda, and then Becky was in the backseat area. Now, Kathy's wallet was open and on the front floorboard face down, and I'll get into that a little bit more here in a second, but just setting the picture, the killer had also tried to burn the car with the bodies in it, but there was one problem. He used diesel fuel, which you can't just light it with a match or a bick. It's not going to catch fire. So this car is doused and everything is doused in diesel. And then the car was put in neutral and it was pushed toward this drop off. So if you imagine there's a little pull off area where presumably that's where Kathy and Becky were. And now we've went from this little pull off area and it's been put in neutral and it's been pushed down to this embankment where it leads down to the river. But because of some underbrush and some things, the car got hung up and it didn't go all the way down. Yeah, there's not a lot of ground clearance on a Honda Civic, so the belly of the car gets hung up. Okay. Exactly. But because of this little embankment area that it was able to get there, where the car was located, if you were just driving by on the parkway, it was far enough away from the road that you wouldn't see it driving by. So although Kathy and Becky are last seen on Thursday night, their car is not noticed by anybody until Sunday morning on the 12th when a pedestrian is out jogging off the parkway and spots it and calls the police. Again, probably thinking, oh, this is some kid who's out partying and had a little too much to drink. Looking at the crime scene and thinking about possible motives for what happened, there's no evidence at all of any sexual assault in this case. Investigators also didn't believe that robbery was a motive because her wallet was open face down on the floorboard in the front of the car, but also Kathy and Becky's purses were still in the car and still had their money, all their contents, as far as anybody could tell, were still in the purses. So nothing of value that was clearly there was taken from the scene. Unless they were hauling the Hope Diamond in the hatchback. <laughs> right. Now, there's evidence that at least Kathy fought back with the killer. You would imagine. And given her personality, mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense. Um, there was some hair that was in between her fingers that was later found during the investigation. And remember, I mean, she's athletic. She graduated from the Naval Academy and just given everything that her brother said about her personality. You'd find it really hard to believe that she wouldn't go down without a fight. Now, it's also important to recognize that these women were a couple at a time when this was just far less accepted than it is now. And it's possible that that was a motivating factor in why they were attacked and ultimately murdered. The fact that this was a double homicide in a single event, it's also less common. It also makes this case stand out a little bit. Sure. And on the one hand, the killer has the sense to try to burn the crime scene to destroy evidence, which shows a level of sophistication that not everybody has. On the flip side of that, he uses, he or she uses diesel fuel and apparently doesn't realize that's not going to catch fire. 
it's oxymoronic that whoever this is is smart enough to know I should destroy the evidence, but doesn't have the knowledge that the diesel fuel is not going to get the job done. It's hard to believe they'd be an experienced criminal and make those kinds of mistakes because the obvious thing to draw from this is that they wanted to put the car in the water. That didn't work. Okay, we'll burn the car and then use diesel fuel. It seems like there wasn't a whole lot of planning and or the person's an idiot. You raise a good point. And I think another thing to think about, too, is not everybody has diesel fuel. I don't know about you, but I don't have any diesel fuel. Somebody either had or had access to diesel fuel that might at least to some degree help to narrow down who we're talking about. It immediately makes me think about farm trucks and contractor vehicles that tend to carry diesel on the back of their pickups that they also drive other places. Yeah, that's a good point. And thinking that way, too, because you might think tractor trailers, they, they use diesel fuel. What about them? But I should point out that commercial trucks are not allowed on the Colonial Parkway because it's just it's not a big road. And it's not really designed for that at all. That that might also help to eliminate some subset of the people we're talking about. So you said that the hair found in Kathy's fingers, you would think between her fingers, it was probably pulled out. I wonder if there were any roots still attached, if there's DNA available. That's a great question. And you wonder about that. But part of that question, too, is even if there were root follicles and even if it were tested and a DNA profile was they were able to obtain one. They got to have somebody to match it to. Sure. And so we saw that, was it the Golden State Killer, who was just recently, that was a cold case that took forever to crack. And it wasn't through CODIS. It was through the familial DNA, 23andMe or one of those places. They were able to link the killer up through, I think it was a, like a nephew or a cousin or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As technology moves along and as more DNA profiles are developed and law enforcement gains access to those kind of resources, maybe we'll see something there. But to this point, there's been no indication that there was if there had been a DNA match, I think we wouldn't be talking about who this could be. We'd be talking about who did it. Bill Thomas, Kathy's brother, would have, if there were a DNA match, a hit, and someone, a pretty solid suspect, I'm pretty sure Bill would be letting the world know. It'd be all over for sure. And in addition to this diesel fuel being oxymoronic, it just strikes me that also this person, the perpetrator, tried to push the car. Clearly, I think the goal there was to push it into the river. But then failed at that, too. So you have a, a person here who tries to dispose of the evidence in two different ways at the same crime scene and just epically fails at both. It's just very fascinating to me. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. My first thought of who has diesel fuel, that's maybe a farm truck or a contractor. But those people tend to understand how mechanics work and they would have foreseen the issue with pushing it off in the river. And they would have also known that diesel fuel probably wasn't the right thing to try and light it off with. So it makes me wonder if it's maybe somebody that was associated with one of those two types of things, but either brand new or not engaged in the manual labor side of things. Yeah. But yeah. then again, that's pretty handsy. Ligature strangulation and then also cutting their throats. That's yeah, let's, oh. let's jump into that here in a second. According to the Oxygen series about this case, Kathy and Becky regularly spent time on the parkway. I think it's important to point out Kathy is in Virginia Beach. Becky is in Williamsburg. I mentioned earlier they're about an hour apart and the parkway kind of connects. It, it runs between the two. And so that's sort of like a midpoint for them. Apparently, they would frequently meet there on Thursday nights. And so it's also possible that somebody knew them and knew they would be there. Then you also 
was this just some random thing and it, and it just kind of fit? The evidence lends itself that I think either are a possibility. And to your point, the brutality of the crime, we can't look past that. To be strangled and then to have your throat slashed after you're strangled to the extent that they were, it just it's horrific. It's up close. It's personal. And Kathy's wound, her neck wound, was much more severe than Becky's. It was deeper than Becky's. It was wider than Becky's. You can see some of the pictures. It's apparent that whoever did this, there's a categorically different level of violence, I would say, that was committed against Kathy than Becky. According to criminologist Dr. Laura Petler, Kathy's wounds indicate that the killer was targeting Kathy, and she believes that the killer was somebody that Kathy most likely knew or had some sort of professional, personal, whatever relationship with. So somebody that was in her orbit based on the crime scene and what was done to her. No disrespect to the good doctor, but just playing devil's advocate here. Yeah. My first thought when you were talking about the greater level of violence against Kathy was that perhaps maybe that was because Kathy was fighting back much stronger. Could that have led to the greater violence? And I, I don't know if you have anything on the autopsy or not, but as to the cause of death, if they were able to determine it was their ligature strangulation and then the cutting just as overkill or was the ligature a failed attempt was this inept person did not realize how long that was going to take gave up and switched it yeah so my understanding is that the death was by strangulation and then the slashing the throats really was overkill and some of the evidence to support that in the crime scene photos and it's actually dr petler who points out that there's no aspirated blood around kathy that had her throat slit while she was still alive, that you would see these bubbled and aspirated blood around that you don't see, that you don't have that. So it does appear that it really is a matter of just overkill. And your point is well taken. You imagine if Kathy is trying to defend herself and is really putting up a fight, does that just enrage this person who did this to the point that she becomes the focus? And you almost wonder, is she taking like a protector stance? And then, and that's where this comes from. I think that's certainly, that's plausible in my mind. To me, between her, what it sounds like her personality was and her training and her disposition, it just doesn't sound like she was going to let anyone hurt her or someone she cared about without putting up a hell of a fight. Yeah, no, I agree. I think you're exactly right. And you mentioned the autopsies. So there's a lot about this case that's not public. This particular crime took place on federal land because it's part of that historical uh, area that is federal land. And um, it has been and is still being investigated by the FBI because it was on federal land. And despite the FBI investigating the case, Kathy Thomas and Rebecca Dowski's murders remain unsolved to this day, 1986 to 2023. And they still don't, we're still not there. And because they're unsolved, because it's an open case, there are a lot of things in the files that haven't been released to the public. And that's almost 40 years for such an inept criminal. That just, that blows my mind for 40 years. And that family has really no answers. Yeah, it's pretty hard to wrap your mind around. But I want to say there are a lot of people who are working hard to see that changed. Kathy's brother, Bill, is chief among them. He continues to keep the story in the media to share about his sister and about the case, about Becky and the people that were in their lives. And, you know, with that, if you're hearing this and if you know anything, if you have any information, you need to report it to law enforcement. Um, you never know how that might impact the investigation. People listening might think, oh, come on, this was 1986. It's been forever. Anybody who's going to say anything would have said something by now. But I don't believe that until the case is solved. I think it's important to get all the information in front of the investigators. So if you know anything, if you have any information, please call and report it to law enforcement. Again, the FBI is the agency that's investigating this case. 
Cold cases get solved all the time. I hope that in my lifetime, this case is solved. Nothing can bring the victims back, but some small sense of justice and just a touch of closure are important for the families. Bill's made this really as a life's mission to get some answers here. And on that note, if anybody has any information, it could be just that one piece of the puzzle that brings it all together. We would recommend contact the local FBI field office, wherever someone lives, or did I hear somewhere, I, I believe that Bill has like open email and phone that he takes tips regularly as well. You're absolutely right. If you go to colonialparkwaymurders.com, that's the website that he has set up. You can find information about the case there. You can also, he has his contacts up there. He also manages a Facebook page that's dedicated to this. If you Google Bill Thomas, you're going to find him. But his information is absolutely out there. And he's very actively involved on the pages on the website. In social media, through the podcast, he's involved in the Oxygen series about this case. You can tell the guy is doing everything he can, and my heart really goes out to him. I can't imagine. It got to be a difficult thing to deal with and to discuss and to remember. Something that intrigued me with Kathy's wallet being found face down in the front floorboard, it makes me wonder if they were approached perhaps by someone representing themselves as law enforcement. I get that her wallet being out, but open and face down? Was she taking her ID out to present to what she believed was law enforcement? That is a great question. And I think that's an awesome point to uh, to put a pin in this episode. And I bet we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a future one. Okay. I also got to say, I don't know, you tell me, when I hear that Becky was in the backseat and Kathy was in the hatchback area, that sounds to me like the crime took place somewhere else. And I don't know if somewhere else is 20 feet away or 20 miles away, but it suggests to me that they were, at least one of them was put in the vehicle to be transported to put them in the river or whatever. I thought about it in the sense that it made me wonder if they had been separated mm -hmm. because... And I don't, I would think that they probably both could have been put in the hatchback or both could have been put in the backseat. I do know it was a two door instead of a four door. So it was interesting to me too that, you know, yeah, I just would have expected them to be together wherever they were put. So then to be separated like that made me wonder if they weren't separated. And you make a good point that it occurred not exactly in that same spot or that way. And I think ultimately we know that given that the offender was attempting to cover up and to destroy evidence, it makes sense that he would have possibly done this in another place and then moved him further along. And the other place, it might have been just 10 feet away. I, I don't know, but yeah. certainly curious. Very curious. Yeah, for sure. There's lots of questions in this case. And so hopefully someday we get all the answers. That's right. Blaine L. Pardo and Victoria R. Hester wrote A Special Kind of Evil, The Colonial Parkway Serial Killings, which was written around 2018. And I think it's the only comprehensive book. They interviewed plenty of family members, lots of folks to write this book. So there's a lot of information. One thing I found in between news accounts and victims, families, stories, things you find on the internet, etc., there are a lot of different sources. And sometimes that comes with a lot of maybe different, um, I don't want to say different stories, but maybe different takes on the same story or maybe some information that can be contradictory at times. I'm sure everybody has a different perspective and everybody knows every piece of information from a different angle. That's right. Yeah. And you think, too, I mean, the, the cases from the 80s, so much time has passed. People's memories fade and even the same person might remember something a little differently now than they did at the time it happened. Now, the brothers in crime talking about other brothers in crime. Rose to the end. And it did not end well. Brotherly victims. Straight out of Kansas City, Missouri, this Brothers in Crime crime 
involves two brothers who unfortunately were at the the short end of the crime stick. And the headline from KCBD 11 reads, Missouri man sentenced for cattle fraud scheme that led to slaying of two Wisconsin brothers. That's a corn fed motherfucker right there. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, look at this picture. Look at this guy. He played offensive I, lineman somewhere. I'm seeing it. Ain't no ghetto in Ethel at all. He is straight up corn fed. All right. We have a Missouri man who's sentenced in federal court for a $215,000 cattle fraud scheme, which he tried to cover up by, did you guess? Murdering two brothers from Wisconsin. This story is straight out of the heartland. It is quite interesting. So he pleaded or pleaded or pled pleaded? You could go with pleaded. You could go with pled. So what did he pleaded to? So he pleaded guilty to one count of mail fraud and one count of being a felon in possession of a firearm. But wait, that was last year. Those were last year. So we've got Garland Joseph Nelson, who's 28, and his mama, Mother Nelson, had started a company, and he was an employee there. He had agreed to take care of some cattle that belonged to another company, and it was this uh, livestock place, right? Dimel's Livestock. And that company, the livestock company, they invested and traded in livestock. Our defendant here, he had agreed to sell and send that company's livestock, the proceeds, less the cost of taking care of the cattle. So essentially, our guy here, Garland, was saying, I'm going to take care of your cattle. You own the cattle. I'm just like a hired hand to get them from little, young, small cows to big, beefy cows that can be sold for more money. So that all makes sense, right? No issues there. The Dimals, they send a bunch of cattle to our guy, Nelson. And this goes on from about November 2018 through April of 2019. And he sold some of them. That our Nelson sold some of them and paid the Dimals for some of the cattle. However, he also tried to kill many of their cattle and he fraudulently billed the Dimals for feed and for yardage for the dead cattle. So Nelson <laughs> admitted to not properly caring for the cattle due to incompetence, neglect, or maltreatment under the law. And hundreds of these calves that were entrusted to him died as a result of this. He would feed them inadequately and poorly. He would drop feed bales in the pasture without removing the plastic coverings, so the calves would eat the plastic and die. I mean, the guy is just, he's awful. Did he not know any better? Was he lazy, stupid, or evil? You got to wonder. I don't know. Personally, I don't know. But it seems to me if you work for a company whose job it is to take care of livestock and this is what you're doing, you got to know that's probably not the right way to feed the cows. Yeah, I would think. I know. If I, I can't just throw my bag of cat food down and let the cats eat it out. You got to take it out of the bag. Cats will get in the damn bag. <laughs> a cat will get in a bag of cat food. You're not wrong about that. So anyway, fast forward a little bit. We get to June 2019, and Nelson sends the Dimals a bad check for a couple hundred thousand dollars, while his bank account only had a balance of 21 cents. Oh, sounds like mine. Now, interestingly enough, the check had also been torn or damaged so that it couldn't be cashed, which, I mean, honestly, that's clever, right? You write a bad check, but then you mess with it a little bit and make sure it doesn't actually get cashed. He did this in an effort to deprive these dimals of their cattle or the money to just keep them from having any of it. As for it a little more, Nelson tells the Dimal brothers that they could come to Missouri to get their money. So 
Nicholas Dimel bought two round trip tickets on July 17, 2019. And uh, July 20th, the Dimel brothers show up in Kansas City. The next day, they drive to Nelson's mother's farm. And Nelson's mom and all of his relatives, they were away in Branson for the weekend. So he was at the farm alone. But when the brothers, the Dimel brothers show up, he murdered them and then tried to dispose of their bodies. However, investigators were able to find the remains later. Then September 30th, Nelson pled guilty to two counts first degree murder in Johnson County, Missouri. He was sentenced on those charges to life in prison without parole for each count, and those life sentences were set to run consecutively. Then they come back and they hit him with some more stuff. So he gets hit with that, those charges I mentioned earlier, prohibited person in possession of a firearm. And in case you're wondering, it was a Marlin 3030. He also received a federal felony conviction for a different cattle fraud scheme that resulted in those victims losing more than $250,000, more than a quarter million. And Mama, who owned the company, didn't know none of this was going on. It's interesting. There's nothing in this reporting about her. So it's unclear. I don't know if she's involved, not involved, if she knew what was up, if she didn't know. That's a good question. But she started the business and she was the owner. And he's working there. This reporting also mentions that our guy Nelson had two state felony convictions for passing bad checks. So he was no stranger to that game. Damn. So two brothers trying to do business with what they thought was a legit company. They can't get their money. They get a shoddy check. The guy says, hey, come on out here. I'll just give it to you. So they go to they hop on a plane and get they their money out. and yeah. they end up dead. They end up murdered over some cattle. There was some expensive cattle, $215,000. Some pricey cows. That's a lot of beef. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode. Yeah, that's fine. You good? What do you need? All right. Go for it.